This week on WealthTrack, perspectives on SPACs, private equity, and other asset allocation choices. The diversification between stocks and bonds is really important and how you structure that decision as an investor. How much stocks do I want to own and how much safe or safer bonds do I want to own? That decision becomes the most important asset allocation decision. T. Rowe Price's global multi-asset head Sebastian Page joins us this week on Consuelo Mac WealthTrack. Look for it on your local public television station and on WealthTrack.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Funding provided by Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, Clearbridge Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, and Strategus Asset Management. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. Old-fashioned asset allocation used to be a fairly simple exercise. 60% individual stocks, usually U.S. large cap, and 40% bonds, mostly investment-grade corporates, some treasury securities for liquidity, and for higher tax brackets, a smattering of municipal bonds. Well, it's become a whole different ballgame requiring complex computer modeling and algorithms, pricing formulas, analysis, and positioning of multiple global asset classes. This week's guest, Sebastian Page, heads up T. Rowe Price's global multi-asset division, where he oversees $350 billion in assets. He is also the author of Beyond Diversification, What Every Investor Needs to Know About Asset Allocation, which we discussed in a recent wealth track. A quick review of the assets he and his team oversee reveals a long list of stock and bond category choices. Equities are categorized several ways by region, U.S. global, X, U.S., Europe, Japan, and emerging markets, by style, U.S. growth, U.S. value, global X, U.S. growth, and global X, U.S. value, then by capitalization, U.S. large cap, U.S. small cap, global X, U.S. large cap, and global X, U.S. small cap. Then there are inflation-sensitive equities, real assets, including natural resources and commercial real estate. There are multiple categories under bonds, U.S. investment grade, developed ex-U.S. investment grade, U.S. Treasury long, meaning longer duration, inflation-linked, global high yield, floating rate loans, emerging market dollar sovereigns, which are emerging market government bonds that trade in dollars. Then there are emerging market local currency bonds. These are the established publicly traded asset classes, but gaining in popularity and availability among Wall Street firms are alternative asset classes, such as hedge funds, private equity, and now the publicly traded SPACs. That means special purpose acquisition companies, formerly known as blank check companies, that raise money through an initial public offering for the express purpose of investing in unidentified private companies. And of course, there's digital currencies like Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, which have been soaring in price and popularity. Well, what to make of these alternative asset classes? How are Page and his T. Rowe Price team positioning their more traditional asset class portfolios? 
That's where we started the conversation. In 2021, we're looking at a, an interesting environment. You could, you could see, for example, the stock market going sideways or down, but the average stock going up. In other words, we're looking at a potential broadening of the market where it's not that obvious that stocks will beat bonds. I will say stocks beat bonds historically on a one-year basis 72% of the time. But when you consider where we are with valuations and what's going on with the macro economy and how we're recovering from the COVID crisis, we end up tactically neutral between stocks and bonds. Why? How does that happen? So essentially, stocks are fairly expensive. So you could say, let's underweight stocks. But bonds are also extremely expensive. So if you have something like a 60-40 portfolio, we wouldn't tactically take a large position up in stocks or down in stocks. And this is part a combination of how we think about the valuations and the risks in the markets. We also have some a, li a little bit because we don't want to have too much cash because over time it's a drag on returns, but some cash dry powder. So we end up neutral. However, Consuelo, we are long what you would call the recovery trade mm -hmm. under the hood. So there are attractive relative valuations in markets. If you expect that the, de the destination where we're going as an economy is a recovery and what we call the COVID off environment, right? The virus is mutating. It's very depressing news every day. We get very bad news. We also get very good news with vaccine developments and you know the pace at which we're vaccinating people is quite slow, but it's accelerating. So it's very bad news, very good news. The destination is ultimately COVID off. We will get through this and right. we will see an, e an economic recovery. So if you take that view and you focus on investing for the destination rather than the rocky path we're in, uh, then you have attractive relative valuation opportunities. For example, we would overweight small caps relative to large caps in our portfolios. Uh, we have added to value stocks relative to growth stocks. So it's a matrix of decisions that we constantly look at, but we're leaning into those asset classes because right now, if you look at value relative to growth, it's basically as cheap as it's ever been. Um, and maybe excluding parts of the dot-com bubble mm -hmm. um, relative to growth stocks. And at the same time, there is opportunity for active management in value stocks. One of our CIOs said he, he thinks the, the investing environment the select, for selection within the value style, for picking stocks within values, is the best he's seen in the last 10 years. And the interesting part that's happening right now, for example, with small caps, is that not only are valuations good, but momentum is positive. And quantitative researchers, those that focus on mathematical models of markets, they all know that historically when those two factors, when you have an asset class that's cheap, that has positive momentum, and that tends to do well from a macro perspective uh, in a recovery where we're going into the cycle, you have the stars starting to align to overweight uh, those asset classes. We've had some false starts, for instance, uh, in value, uh, in, you know, in the past. What gives you confidence that perhaps this recovery uh, is, is for real? 
you know, quite a, you're right, quite a few head fakes, uh, if you will. Growth stocks have a long-term secular advantage due to the digitization of our economy and the disruption that a lot of those underlying companies bring to their marketplace. Right. So it's not like we're going completely out of growth stocks, completely into value. It's a lean in our portfolios in order to add some returns incrementally on the margin. But right now, analysts on our platforms, for example, are upgrading banks um, based on mm-hmm. valuations, based on how banks do when the yield curve steepens, when rates start to creep higher a little bit, even though the Fed's trying to keep the short rates down, down. for a long time. But we really listen to our bottom-up security level analysts on our platform. And when they start upgrading banks, generally, that gives us more confidence to add to value. And also, if you take kind of the 6 to 18-month horizon, you could see a fairly good performance in energy, for example, uh, as it recovers with this, with lower supply, right? Energy and resources, a lot of it is about demand and supply. And if you get economic acceleration, you start to get a good case for value, but against probably selective value implemented uh, actively. When we do get through this COVID suppression of economic activity, you know, I do have the sense that the lid is going to be off. Could we be in for, I mean, a really a boom? And, you know, you're a global manager. So are, are we looking at a global boom? I think we could. And it's a very unusual recession. And I do right. believe there is a lot of pent up demand in the economy. And, and it's very uneven. And that's the sad thing, right? Not everybody's benefiting from stimulus measures. Yes. But if you look in aggregate at personal disposable income, I just saw an estimate that we're one trillion above the level of personal disposable income that we had in 2019. Wow. There is a possibility that we hit like a coiled spring and we have this pent-up demand in certain sectors of the economy. A lot of them are associated with smaller companies or value stocks, for example, uh, that could see an acceleration that could actually surprise, surprise even the market, uh, which is already optimistic to begin with. But... Um, Short answer is, yes, I think there is pent-up demand in the economy if you look at uh, the cash that's been pumped in. What is the outlook for fixed income, especially, again, if we have an economic recovery? Yes, the Fed is suppressing short-term interest rates right now, but with demand, interest rates typically will go up. Uh, So tell us about your strategy uh, in in the fixed income space. So... In terms of taking interest rate risk, we would be quite close to neutral. So we wouldn't take away all the protection in the portfolio, but we wouldn't add a lot more bonds or treasuries to the portfolio. One asset class in fixed income markets where we have added to is uh, the bank loans asset class, which has a yield that's actually comparable to high yield bonds, or people sometimes call them junk bonds. Mm -hmm. So they actually give you a similar yield, but they have a very different uh, behavior in rising rates because typically the rates charged on bank loans reset every 90 days. So you have this kind of interesting feature for a fixed income asset class that when rates rise, uh, the bank loans tend to actually do okay, uh, especially relative to other fixed income asset classes 
and they give you yield, they're also fairly high in the capital structure, meaning the credit risk is fairly contained relative to the high yield asset class. And, um, you know, you have, um, you have an environment that could uh, favor that asset class relative to high yield. So we've taken money from our high yield portfolios and we've put some of that money into bank loans. We think that's one of the opportunities in fixed income. Interest rates possibly are going to rise in 2021. Is that what you all think? And what about inflation? Yes, I think you could see both rise, interest rates and inflation, and and ultimately nominal rates, which include inflation expectations. But we don't think to the point where it would be directly disruptive to the stock market and to risk assets. The interesting part about inflation is that it's kind of hard to get inflation even in an economic recovery, even when you have unprecedented amount of stimulus, right? And and look, the, the high end of the estimates I've seen is we're at 25 trillion globally, fiscal and monetary, right. 25 trillion. It's unprecedented, uh, it's incredible. And you look at the money supply, the M1 money supply jumped in one year by 30%. That is right. also unprecedented and related to the stimulus measures. So that increases inflation risk. But what we're really getting is asset price inflation more than traditional goods inflation. And in order to get more traditional inflation, typically you need to have the economy run hot first. And we're at six plus percent unemployment and GDP below capacity. It's hard to expect a drastic inflation shock for 2021, at least. Let's talk about that asset inflation. Uh, and it, you know, it, it plays to the fact that all of that money is going somewhere and that money has been going into the financial markets. And so how frothy do you feel that the financial markets are? We talked about both stocks and bonds being expensive or highly valued, but also Talk about the risks that we're seeing in the alternative asset classes, which I really want to get your views on as well. So on public markets, stocks and bonds, I like to think of valuations in terms of expected returns because expected returns should be directly linked, at least in the long run, to valuations. If you want to kind of get an idea, given valuations, of the return you're going to get over, say, four, five, six-year horizon, it turns out that yield to maturity that's quoted on the Mm -hmm. bond index is a really good estimate for forward returns on bonds. You know, it's not a complicated forecast. Well, that number is about 1.2% for the Barclays aggregate in the U.S., So take a four or five year horizon, the way the math works and the way the history works is that that's probably what you can reasonably expect for returns on bonds, 1.2% before inflation. So that speaks to bonds being expensive. What about stocks? Well, let's say we assume, and this is close to what it is right now, a price earnings ratio on stocks of, let's say you look at 2021 or 2022 earnings of 20 keep a round number. Well, one way to get a, an easy return forecast, and it's not perfect, but I explain the caveats in my book, is to take the inverse of that number. So take one over 20, and that gives you a rough rule of thumb, long run expected return for stocks. That's 5%. Mm-hmm. 
So that shows you that stocks are expensive as well, right? We've been accustomed to double-digit stock returns for the last 10, 15 plus years. So those are the valuations in public markets. It's important as asset allocators to look at one versus the other as well, right? Uh, the yes. so-called equity risk premium. Are we getting compensated for the risk we're taking in stocks? And that's where we end up kind of uh, strategically neutral between those two asset classes. Right. And, and, and you, are, you are getting rewarded, right? I mean, it's, you know, 5% versus, you know, 1.2%. So you, s- stocks still win in that respect, right? Yeah, you are getting rewarded. But the issue also is that, as we know, in markets, you get volatility. So the yes. trade-off is the short-term drawdowns and volatility and uncertainty of being invested in stocks. And that's where you need to adjust your mix based on your time horizon and other factors. All right. Alternative investments, which is where a lot of money is going in search for higher returns. Look, there's just so much money flooding markets. A lot of it is making its way into private markets. And you've you've seen what's been happening with SPACs, you see pockets of bubble-like behavior, speculation on penny stocks, some hot technology companies being driven up. We tend to blame the individual investors, maybe a, a little too much for that. Uh, there's speculation broadly in markets. Um, so you end up with money flowing into private markets at an unprecedented rate. My view, broadly speaking, is that as an industry, we're making too much of a difference between private and public markets from a fundamental perspective. Right. And, and, and let me ask you about that, because I know David Swenson, for instance, who runs the Yale Endowment, was an early, uh, you know, an early investor in the private markets and did extremely well. So the endowment model then was adop- adopted by many other people because the private equity, for instance, and hedge funds that he invested in seem to do extremely well. Tell us about where we are now quite late in that cycle with private equity, for instance. And, and I, I will just say that when I talk to people in private equity, they show me results that say that they have you know, consistently beaten the public markets uh, you know, with less volatility. That's their argument. And they've got numbers supposedly to prove it. What, what is your view of the returns of private equity and the attractiveness of private equity now? Yeah, those are great questions. And uh, as to the question is where we are now, we're in a situation where everything's expensive. Stocks, bonds, private assets have seen so much inflows that they are expensive as well. And there is a link between private and public markets that we tend to underestimate. Does that mean that private markets are in a bubble? Not necessarily. Uh, There is a lot more money coming the way uh, uh, towards private markets. Now, if we take the historical claims, you know, this is really interesting. One of the biggest differences, the biggest chasm between what you read in academic research and what you hear across our industry is on the historical performance of private equity as an asset class. Consuelo, you would think this is simple, right? It's something you measure and everybody agrees on. Right. But it's actually, it's not the case. So you see a lot of claims out there, depending on how the returns are measured with internal rates of returns, which account for the timing of where you deploy the cash and 
other ways of compiling the data that, hey, private equity is really awesome. It's got low risk, low volatility. It's got 4 or 5% or more return above the stock market. It's just fantastic. And you see a lot of those claims. Now, if you do a little bit of research on the academic side and you look at research that has been really carefully done, scrubbing the data, looking at things like zombie valuations, private equity funds that should have been taken out of the database, but that are still carried at a zombie valuation, or things like, this is a bit technical, but survivorship bias and which companies have exited along the way and are not accounted for in the aggregate performance. Right. And, uh, you know, things like the timing of the cash flows going in and out of those private equity investments and how they're valued over time with some amount of discretion. You do all of that. You do all this careful, really painstaking work in measuring the performance of the asset class. Right. What really happened in real life. Yeah. Essentially. Exactly. And, and what you what you end up with is that there's nothing wrong with private equity and it, it can have a, a premium for the illiquidity, right, for the fact that you're giving up liquidity. But it's really after you adjust for that, it's really comparable to public markets. It's not it's not a free lunch. I think it has right. a role in investors portfolios. But there's just this massive difference between how academics are looking at the performance and how our industry is looking at the performance. It's an important question given the amount of money flowing into private markets and the fact that it's coming to individual investors as well, becoming more accessible for individual investors. Right, which is why I'm concerned about it. Absolutely. And of course, private equity to participate, you pay a lot to participate in fees. What, what is your kind of interpretation of the, the tremendous interest in SPACs, these special purpose Acquisition corporations, the you know they used to be called blank check companies, where you you give an investor uh, your money, not knowing what companies, company or companies they're going to buy and eventually take public, and and is it kind of a, the same sort of phenomenon that you see uh, in the cryptocurrencies, in in the speculation in digital currencies such as Bitcoin? I mean, is there something going on in the market that is troubling? It is troubling. It's not necessarily at a stage where you would say this is a massive systemic risk that could take the entire financial system down. Right. But it is troubling and is something that is worrying a lot of investors. The SPACs, for example, are evidence of when you have incentives in place that allow companies to essentially bypass an IPO process and raise a lot of funds, then those incentives will will work and people will respond to incentives. And also, it's basically what we were talking about earlier, a reflection of just the amount of liquidity yes. flooding the markets. One way one of our analysts put it, and I, I think it also gets to Bitcoin, your Bitcoin question, he took an estimate of global stimulus measures between monetary and fiscal and measured the total number over time. But then he divided that number by what he estimated to be the size of the financial markets. So basically, stimulus measures in dollar terms divided by the size of the markets. And he drew that line over time and showed that how it jumped during COVID for, for reasons that are understandable, right? To rescue the economy, an unprecedented shock in the economy. But essentially his conclusion was, look, there is 
more money chasing less stuff to buy than ever before in history. Wow. Think of the 25 trillion I mentioned earlier, but it's roughly, it's, it's, it's more than 30, 40% of the total size of the stock market globally, the total market cap of the stock market. Whew. So that leads to things like SPACs taking up. A lot of people say this has to end badly. What's your view? I think there's reason to worry. And we look at sentiment, investor sentiment, trying to see how willing people are to speculate on markets. And we also look at liquidity. And we're kind of conflating the two and talking about both, right? Lots of money chasing less stuff to buy and also investors being optimistic. It's the, it's the combined effect of the two. If you carve out sentiment measures, we look at about 25 different sentiment measures. It's not extreme. So I'm not saying we're not seeing speculation and excessive speculation and excessive liquidity in many parts of the markets. But in my mind, it's not in bubble territory from a sentiment perspective. That's reassuring. For now, at any rate, if there were one investment that we should all own some of in a long-term diversified portfolio, what would it be? I would talk about bank loans. And bank loans are interesting as an asset class because they tend to be high yielding. They behave differently than other parts of the bond market. They're less sensitive to rising rates and they're fairly high in the capital structure. So credit risk is reasonable. So my answer would be bank loans. All right. So, Sebastian Page, thank you so much for joining us on Wealth Track. And con- congratulations on your book, Beyond Diversification. Definitely thank well you. worth reading. Thanks. At the close of every Wealth Track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is read Against the Gods, the remarkable story of risk by the late great financial historian and economist Peter Bernstein, who appeared exclusively on WealthTrack several times. This fascinating and entertaining best-selling classic explores the role of risk in society from ancient times to the present and how understanding and managing risk has liberated humans from the influence of the soothsayers and oracles of old. Against the Gods also helps investors understand and manage the risks they face every day. For those of you on social media, keep connecting with us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy your weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.